All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 6, we'll start in verse 4 and we'll go all the way through chapter 7 uh, this morning. Uh, I want to thank those of you. We, we did, in fact, get moved in and uh, about 50% of our house is unpacked. The other 50% is books and uh, there are book, book uh, shelves being made uh, and uh, Josh is doing that for us and he's doing a fantastic job. And so uh, I don't know that he wants to make more bookcases after this. Uh, his wife has said they will be at her house first uh, before he takes on any more. But um, a number of you have fed us well and helped us unpack our stuff and just checked on us. And so thank you very much for doing that. Um, another family in our church also has just gotten a house, the Kings, uh, Brent and Melissa. And so they will be uh, moving and maybe need some help uh, for one day lifting some of their heavier stuff and, uh, and just maybe even just need help somebody keeping their kids so they can actually move their stuff. So uh, do check with them and see, and, and we'll be letting you know as well as they, uh, as they let us know what day they're going to be doing that. So uh, again, thank you very much. You guys have been incredibly gracious to us. Um, as we look at this, we have to remember what Hosea 14 says, but even more than Hosea 14, what the whole sweep of the biblical story is about. I think that one of the great mistakes that we make when we come to certain biblical texts is we take them not only out of the local context of the, of the text itself, but out of the broader biblical redemptive story, right? And so, yes, it would be incredibly hard if all you had was the book of Obadiah or the book of Nahum. And if that's where the Bible ended, you would be right to say that God is not, in fact, very good. But that's not where the Bible ends. And so I want to caution you, even in your own study time, that as you run across difficult texts, texts that, that uh, seem to be in and of themselves in a vacuum would be very difficult to, to interpret and very difficult to think that God in any way, shape, or form was benevolent, that he is in fact malevolent or bad, um, I want to challenge you to see how it fits in the greater redemptive story. Now, I can say that because I was a radical anti-theist. That means I hated God. I wasn't just a casual atheist. I was in the lineage of uh, the former Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, but even before those guys, Bertrand Russell, Albert Camus, those were my heroes. And so as I approached scripture, I came with a deep hermeneutic of suspicion and still have one, but the suspicion has shifted from thinking that God is evil and shifted more toward how does this fit in the redemptive story? And I can tell you there have been some very hard passages and there still are some, by the way. Uh, but there have been some very hard passages that over time, as I've studied and prayed, the Lord has shown where those things, in fact, do have an answer. And so, but it takes time, it takes effort. Remember how last week we talked about pressing on to know the Lord. That's kind of part of that, right? Is taking the time to cultivate and try to understand what's happening. We don't, we just don't, we want to be able to read it and, and pull it right off the topsoil. Well, think about the story. We're talking about death and resurrection and return and making of all things new. How do you just pull that off the topsoil? That takes a little bit of effort to come around to that because it is supernatural. It's not natural to us, right? And so I want to encourage us as we are going into a tough text this week um, to remember what the point of the whole story is, right? That, that God would be what as far as his people are concerned? What is God longing for? He wants to be with his people. And so what has to happen for that to happen? That which separates us from him has to go. So what has to go? What separates us from the Lord? Sin separates us from the Lord. But it's not just, so, so it's not just something that's, that's uh, just kind of casual. It is willful rebellion and disobedience. Remember, the whole issue is that whole creator-creature distinction. We want to be the creator right? If you look at any of the major stories in our news right now, that is the category in which most of them fall because we want to be able to declare who and what we are void of biology, void of theology, void of anthropology, void of sociology, and void of psychology. So we want to we tear the whole project down and just be able to say, I'm a blank slate and I can be anything I want, which is just not true, by the way. And so we, are, we need to understand sin is not something casual. It's something that we participate in, something that we cultivate. Yes, it is uh, something that we have by virtue of Adam and Eve, our first parents. But it is not the end of our story. And that is great news. 
And God so loves us that he is unwilling that anyone should perish of his family, that he would not lose one of the ones who long to be in his family, that would, that would return the love he has given to them, that the steadfast love he has shown, that we would in like kind show him steadfast love, that the knowledge that he has of us, we would press on to know him, right? And so um, the hard part is some do perish. Unless you're a universalist, and that makes it easier, right? <laughs> Nobody perishes, and then you really don't need to be here because it's all going to work out anyway. You could spend your time otherwise. But if any do perish, what do we do with that? Well, Spurgeon would say, we ought to have tears in our eyes that any would perish, that any would reject this kind of family, that any would reject this kind of love, a love that surpasses all understanding, right? And so as we approach this text this morning, I want to read yet again Hosea 14, verses 4 through 7, so at least you can't say that within the context of the book itself that this idea is somehow lost. So notice what Hosea the prophet by virtue of the word of the Lord being given to him, where is he trying to get the people to go? This is where he's trying to get them to go. I, being God, will heal their apostasy. So what is apostasy? That means just a total rejection of the things of God. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. Now, how many of us long for uh, the, just being loved freely? without having to live up to this host of expectations, without having to be something prior to, without not having to earn that love, right? That we would be loved freely and be able to love freely in return without all of the encumbrances and all of the things that we're fighting, right? He says, I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. That just means we're going to, that's all flourishing language. We're going to flourish. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. So know that this is where we're trying to get to. We got to, and there's things we just have to keep reminding ourselves of. Hosea's not reading the newspaper. This is warning. Remember, God's been warning them for at least 170 years before Hosea shows up on the scene. That's fair at minimum, right? In fact, some of you might would say, as parents, how many of you as parents, you, you're, you're taking the 30-year plan for warning your children on stuff? There's a 30-year gap between you saying, don't do that, and then punishment. No, none of you shouldn't. Anyway, it's really kind of bad parenting unless you're God. Um, and so he, because of the nature of judgment, it's not go sit in the corner. It's depart from me for I never knew you. So this isn't casual. The gravity of the situation is so great that the Lord is patient and he is kind and he is long-suffering, all of those things that he confesses of himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, right? We've talked about those in here before. And so 200 years, he calls out to them. And he, and, he, and he says, if you would just turn back to me, remember what we read last week or what we heard last week from Hosea 6, 1 through 3, where the prophet is saying, let us return to the Lord. That which he has torn, he will heal. That which he has struck down, he will bind up. What good news. Who, who does that kind of stuff? There is, you could study all of the other world religions and none of them have that feature. None of them have that possibility in the same way that we have here. This is utterly unique in world religions. And so, this call to us, this, this warning is very important. And this week, what Hosea is going to delve into is a particular aspect of their brokenness that I think we can, we can attest to. They wanted someone else other than God to save them, to, to affirm them, to grant them their identity. In this case, they're going after political lovers less wild than God himself, right? And so uh, in this sense, you may say, well, I didn't even vote. I don't go after political. I don't, I don't, I don't, even, I don't even, I don't blog. I don't tweet. I don't 
twit. I don't do any of that stuff. I know all the tweeters. Uh, no, you don't. And so that, that's fine. But what we're talking about here is more than just politics, right? How many of us have sought our identity in a relationship that we knew was bad? Don't raise your hands. Right? And how many of us went back? Like, I, confessionally, I had, had a girlfriend that we fought all the time. And when we'd break up, I would I would cry. I know it's hard to believe. I would cry and think, we just had such a good relationship. I just, I got to get back with her. Now, did you, are, you, are you crazy? Like, have you forgotten all that you've been through, and yet I'd do it? We did it, I don't know how many times. The cycle just repeated it. It's not Susan, by the way. <laughs> She's awesome. Uh, the one time I broke up with her, I became a Christian. So that, that actually worked out pretty well, and then we got married. Uh, and so, so, but that's us, right? We're, we're constant, or we're looking for someone to affirm us in terms of a job or someone to affirm us in terms of a, 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 a position in terms of sports or uh, in, in the band or whatever it may be. We are constantly looking for someone else to make us who God has intended for us to better be. We're, we're always trying to be less than what it is God designed us for because we're afraid of him and we've gotten twisted ideas about him and we've read verses out of context and we've forgotten the redemptive story. So as we read this this morning, be thinking about yourself. What, what are some things that you've chased after? Don't just think of it in terms of politics, although some of you, it has been politics in some measure. Um, and, and for some of us, it is to hope in the laws of the land to make us safe and secure. Probably not going to be the case forever. Um, and, and would be foolish of us, given the sweep of history and what we know of the biblical story. If you've read Revelation or some other things, probably be foolish of us to think we're going to get out of this without some form of suffering of some kind. Uh, on a more kind of global scale. So, as we turn to this text, uh, I want to ask you the question, what are, what are the characteristics of relationships that actually affirm and bless you? Right? How many of you would say, man, codependency, that is where it's at. It really makes me feel good about myself. Or, or uh, an, an abusive relationship just really kind of helps put things in perspective for me. It helps me remember. Worm theology is just good for me. Or worse, someone who never tells you the truth and is always puffing you up and never actually loves you enough to say, you do look fat in those pants. Um, and uh, uh, I have a pair of shorts that I blew the button off yesterday for the fourth time. Susan was like, I can't keep doing this. We gotta, I'm gonna have to move the button over. Uh, and so, so she loved me enough to say, something's gotta give, brother. Uh, and so, so she's kind enough to move the button. Um, and so, so we, we have all kind of variants on that, right? So, so you really need to think about what kind, what are the characteristics, especially for those of you who are single this morning. This is incredibly important for you to have some non-negotiables that, 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 that protect you, right? Because we're way too quick to say, ah, fine, you're, yeah, you're close enough or, I'm never going to find the right thing. Now, be careful that you don't have like something, something ridiculous, right? Uh, unless Steve McQueen comes back from the dead, I'm not, I'm not going to marry anybody or something like that. I don't even know if that reference means anything to you guys, but fine. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. So, but you want to have some things that you know are going to help you. And so what is, what's most important? What should, since we're in church, this ought to be a clue to what the answer might be. What should be the most important factor for any and every relationship that you are in? Especially those that, that have any level of intimacy whatsoever. And by intimacy, that's the, that's the whole gamut of them knowing you, not just physically, but knowing you spiritually, knowing you as a person, knowing your weak spots. What should be primarily the characteristic of that relationship? They love the Lord their God, your God, and will build you up in it. Any relationship that will carry you further from the Lord, I don't care what other criteria it meets, is it good? No. Now, did I just say you can't be friends with non-believers? 
That's not what I said. That's probably a really bad idea, an unbiblical idea to marry one, to be unequally yoked. And you can be friends with an unbeliever, and that actually help you grow in your faith, actually. But you've got to have kind of barriers for that, too. Like, I would love, he's dead now, but I would have hung out with Christopher Hitchens. But I'd have had to be careful um, because I could be led astray, right? But if it comes to the other kinds of relationships, it should be that they build us up. And this should be true of friendships as well, by the way. You ought to have friendships that help you to grow in discipleship. There ought to be relationships in which you can be known and known in a way that you are not fearful. Because again, we fail to understand the gospel when we think that if we, if we were to tell certain people certain things, that we would no longer be worthy. That is a complete complete failure of an understanding of the gospel. Derek Webb has, has often said, and unfortunately this kind of happened to him, if you're, the best thing that could ever happen to you is your sin be displayed on the screen in full, right? So then the cat would be out of the bag and we wouldn't have to worry about it anymore and we would know just how awful we all are left to our own devices. But see, that leads us to worm theology if that's all we ever talk about is our sin. Remember, sin should not be the focus for those who are redeemed in Christ. For those who are redeemed in Christ, what ought to be the focus is living as an ambassador of reconciliation, the cultivation of the good things, the image bearing that is in you. Because before God, you no longer are seen in reference to your sin. I know some of you think that the person you cut off this morning and you let them know in no uncertain terms that they are a wretched human being, that, that somehow that rose before the throne before you got in here. No, it didn't, actually. But that was far as east is from the west. I know my mind's blown about it, too. And it doesn't rise before the throne because you are in the righteousness of Christ, which is a done deal, by the way. Now, you may say, but aren't there consequences? Yes, if you have a Nick Thews fish on the back of your car or a we don't do Christ Community Bumper Stickers for this very reason. Uh, and so, so if you had some identifying marker, yes, they would think less of you as a Christian or maybe Christianity as a whole. So there are earthly consequences. There are, don't get me wrong. But we need to live as a people who recognize that we have been forgiven and that we can walk in newness of life and that our relationships ought to cultivate that reality because we're constantly being assailed in and out to the contrary because we live in a fallen world. We do a poor job of building each other up. In fact, we're constantly trying to keep the trees low so that we look taller. So you need to think about what kind of characteristics of relationships bless you and that means that you also ought to think about how you are a blessing in your relationships to others. How are you building others up? How are you speaking good words to them? Remember what the scripture says. We ought to speak words fitly in due season. Our words ought to be encouraging and building up. As one who is very gifted at sarcasm, sometimes I have a hard time with that and can, right? And there are times where I feel like, I should give you a gold star for doing what you're supposed to do. But sometimes we need that, right? We, we need to be encouraged and built up. And so we ought to be the kind of people who do that biblically and create relationships that, that have the opportunity to change the world. And those relationships are not commodified, right? They're not only what I can get out of it or what you can get out of it, which is what God doesn't want from us. And that is the backdrop for the verses this morning. He's going to push against and say, I am not the God of commodity, I'm not asking you to do these religious rites so that I'll be appeased. Are you, are you daft? He's not British, but if he were, he would say, are you daft? He, he doesn't want you to just kill a lamb and him go, okay, fine. Now everything's better. The killing of the lamb is so that you know the gravity of your sin. Remember when we talked about Leviticus, the whole worship service assaulted the senses so that we would recognize the gravity of the situation. It wasn't that he needed a dead lamb. He's not Molech who needs dead children. It is us who needs to be reminded of what our sin costs. And that is so that we would be in relationship and we recognize the gravity of that relationship, how much, in fact, we are truly loved and forgiven. All right, if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, we'll pick it up in 6.4 and I'll read through 7.1. Hear God's word this morning. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? 
What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgments go forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they, or Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's adultery or harlotry is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. Now, this passage is in sharp contrast to what we read last week, especially in verse three. Remember how Hosea described God as being faithful as the rains that would come, as the provision that would come to keep the people alive. So he's contrasting how their love just goes away like the morning dew. It's, it's silly, it's easily done away with. How many of you enjoy being in relationships with people that are, that are flighty? They don't show up when they're supposed to. They don't ever do what they're supposed to. They don't hold their end of the bargain. They're just all over the place. Their love comes and goes. Do you enjoy being in relationship with someone who never reciprocates, who's always taking and never giving back? See, this is the North Kingdom. So remember the term Ephraim is a reference to the North Kingdom, which is the largest tribe from which came Jeroboam I. Remember that he is, in fact, the one that they follow for 200 years. It doesn't matter that the kings change out. All of them commit the same sin, which is false worship. They teach the people not the knowledge of God. Think of this. The priests, the, even they are getting in on the bloodshed at Shechem. So what we have here is God saying, you are utterly different than me. I am faithful. You are flighty and untrustworthy. Your love just flits about. That should not be a quality for any Christian, by the way. We should be the most stable. Our yes ought to be yes and our no ought to be no, right? And so this is very important that we recognize this dichotomy. In addition to that dichotomy, there's another one because remember what he had created them for. He created them to be a priesthood to wear. The world. And instead, what we have here is a geography of sin. Now, scholars argue about what the word Adam or Adam means here. Could be a place name. Could be these going all the way back to the beginning. It could be just talking about dirt. Um, context indicates probably is a place name. But either way, what he is saying is this. You who had everything. Everything you needed to be obedient have utterly rejected it outright, wholesale, and you have turned what should have been the promised land, not just for you, but for the world, into a place of bloodshed. You have turned it instead into a den of thieves and robbers. That sound familiar from the New Testament? And so it is critical that we remember who we were created to be and how we've gotten off course, that, that we have gone after lovers less wild, that we have commodified our relationship with God. How many of you, if you're honest, don't raise your hands. If you were honest, you would say, a lot of times going to church is just me checking the box. I'm just doing it because I don't want cancer. As if that would somehow do it, right? Not your diet, but church. Um, no, that's not how this works. Or, or I, suddenly you begin to pray because something bad happens as if God made something bad happen because you weren't doing your religious duties and rights. That's not how this relationship works. He does not desire that. The one who loved us first steadfastly calls for us to reciprocate in kind. The one who knows us from the very moment of our being and before. The, the one who knows all of, of you, every fiber of how you are made. 
and loves every fiber of how you are uniquely crafted. He knows you and wants you to know him in kind, which is why we will have an eternity to enjoy that said knowledge and all that steadfast love. And so it's, a, it's an interesting thing. There's a contemporary poet named David White who says this, because I think sometimes, again, the commodity of the relationship is that we're, we're constantly, we treat God like, and, and the religious duties like some sort of rabbit's foot, right? So if we just, just kind of look busy, Jesus won't turn his gaze our way or God won't notice the stuff we're not doing, right? He says this, he says, despite everything you have achieved, life refuses to grant you and always will refuse to grant you Immunity from its difficulties. Did you hear that? No matter what you do, so a contemporary poet, who by the way, I'm not sure is a Christian, he at least gets that you cannot keep at bay difficulties in this life. We could quote Romans 5, Romans 8, 1 Peter 4, James 1, uh, John 14 through 16. We will have trouble in this world. And no religious duty you do is going to keep that at bay. That's to commodify your relationship with God. And if it is a fact that we are going to experience trouble of some kind in this world, how much better would it be for us to know the Lord our God who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death, who is with us under every circumstance, who never leaves truly nor forsakes us truly, that we would know who to turn to and what to find comfort in instead of looking all these other places like we are guilty of. And notice that given this geography of sin, God still is trying to cry out to them and love them. He's saying, he basically said, I would heal you. I would heal you if you would turn to me. But the people refuse, right? Another poet, W.H. Auden, uh, writes this, and I think it's brilliant. He says, we, and I think, it, I think it, it's us in spades, many of us anyway, we would rather be ruined than changed. Did you hear that? Let that sink in for a second. We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the, the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. Let me repeat that again. I know it's poetry. We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. So many of us have said, I cannot change. Now, I want you to actually be honest. Here's how you need to say it. I will not change. Let it be the full rebellion that it is. So at least, at least you're not lying on top of whatever it is you're saying you cannot change from. Because to say you cannot change is, is just pure stoicism and it's fatalism and it's not going to do you any good. But instead to recognize that there is in fact a struggle, right? For some reason we've, we've said that Christianity is supposed to free us from the struggle. No, it doesn't. In fact, it carries you further into it. The longer I live, the greater my sin becomes, the greater the cross becomes, the greater the redemption. I don't say that in a neurotic fashion. I don't have worm theology. I don't, I don't view myself as this pitiful sinner. No, I am so thankful to be a son of the God most high. In fact, as I sat on my back porch and just looked out at what the Lord has given to Susan and I, there's this beauty of this place, and you're all invited there at various points. Don't all come one time. Parking would be a problem. Uh, but, but it's just beautiful. And I said, and my first question was, and it was a distorted question. I said, Lord, why did you give this to us? Why do we deserve this? And God is so gracious sometimes to say, that's a terrible question. The better question is, what are you going to do with it? I have given it to you. Now, how will you use it to be hospitable and to bless others, right? How will you use it to help others uh, who need 
for their illusions to die, to climb the cross of the moment and to see that what they think is gravity is not because the one who made gravity says otherwise. Right? So know that the people of the North Kingdom and of the South Kingdom, which is Judah, are not, are not stumbling into a bad situation. They are running headlong and they're rejecting just like us when we do what we do. So we need to do away with this idea that God just leaves us to kind of stumble about in the dark and run in and bump into stuff, bump into grace sometimes or bump into suffering sometimes. No, he is sovereign and there is a plan laid out. The question is, do we know him enough to see the steps? Do we, is our path lit as we talked about earlier? Charles Simeon says this, there is a disposition every, in every man and woman to substitute external observances for the devotion of the heart. That all of us are predisposed to that. That we would rather do some kind of stuff we can manage instead of uh, being involved in something that will change us. Again, it is the devil we know that we stay comfortable with. And to rest satisfied with rendering to God some easy services while they are utterly averse to those duties which are more difficult and self-denying. But God cannot be deceived, nor will he be mocked. He will look at the heart and not at the outward appearance only. And will mark with indignation the partial obedience of the hypocrite, no less than the open obedience of the uh, open disobedience of the profane. Those are hard words, but we need to hear them. That that it is not you, you, there is no cheap grace pass on this, right? But but our problem is is that we see things as duty instead of opportunity, right? Instead of the recognition that you don't have to come here every Sunday, you don't. Nobody's keeping score. I know you think I do because I'll sometimes email you and be like, hey, how you doing? Where are you at? Right? That's just shepherding. Um, and so, so, so we think that we have to come here. No, you don't. You get to. You get to yet again experience, hopefully, the greatest story ever told, that you get to hear some part of it that welcomes you further into it, that you get to be confronted. I know we don't like that, but we get to be confronted by some part of it that calls us to newness of life and change. We have such a low view of this. This is why we try so hard, and I think we do a great job of it, of not entertaining you. Right? And some of you wonder, why don't we like do three, four songs in a row, kind of whip it into a lather, let's get, you know, get something going. Because that's manipulation of your emotions. No. This is why the stop and the start. This is why we design the worship the way we do. Does that mean we're totally right? No, it's just pedagogically where we're trying to get to. And we don't want to manipulate your emotions and make you think you are something you are not or feel better about something that actually is not true. Am I condemning everybody who does three songs in a row? Let me say, no, I'm not. They have reasons for doing what they do as well. And some of them are deeply biblical. I'm not condemning them for doing that. We just are making a decision given our cultural moment. So how have you grown in your steadfast love for and knowledge of God? This is a great question for you to consider this Sabbath day. Because if you can look back over the last few months or year and you haven't grown, you need to question that. And you need to question it thoroughly. Part of the question ought to be, what are some ways in which the means of grace, that means the word read, studied, sung, prayed, preached, and made visible in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, how have those things helped you to grow in your steadfast love and knowledge for God? And I'll go a step further. If by being a member of this church or coming to this church, you're not growing. And you can honestly say, I, I don't think I've grown last year. Now, be, be careful. You can't blame us in toto if you've got some things going on in your own heart. But if you haven't grown in the last year, visit somewhere else to see if maybe there's something better for you. Right? Because our goal, we want you to flourish. I'm not trying to free up chairs. I know this is kind of the anti-sales pitch. But we want you to flourish. And if this place, if we are not helping you to do that, I just bought a house. You can't bank on me leaving soon. And then maybe getting someone who's more entertaining that'll go three songs. You know, that whole thing, right? 
So, so here's the thing, and I know that sounds crazy, but we do, we get comfortable, right? This is, it's like, fine, I'll just, we'll go here. Resignation, discipleship, I call it. Uh, <laughs> emphasis on the first word. And so, so I want you to think this through. And if, if there's, you say, hey, I'm not growing, then you ought, to, you ought to invite us, the elders, the deacons, somebody you trust in this church into a space to try to help figure that out. Because it is, it is not a good thing for us to be able to have a whole year clip off and we don't feel like we've grown. Let me give you a caution. We are Western, we're American, and so we think in big terms, right? We think, uh, you ought to have some profound thing. No, it could, be, it could be something very simple. It could just be a richer understanding of what Christ has done for you. It could be just a, a more profound just gratitude that has grown in you over the last year because you know that God loves you and that you are made in his image and that you are called to be an ambassador of reconciliation. It may be something as simple as just having a richer view of your vocation, a richer understanding of the Sabbath, whatever it may be. Maybe you've suffered well through something. But you should have grown in the last year in some form or fashion in your steadfast love for God and knowledge of God. If not, let's, do, let's, do, let's try to figure that out. Let's not let another year go by and, and everything remain the same because as the scripture says to us, that is dangerous to us. Let's turn back to the text, verses two through 16 from chapter seven. But... They do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now, their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire. From the kneading of the dough until it is leavened, on the day of... On the day of our king, the princes become sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with the mockers, for with hearts like an oven they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread my uh, spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves, they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. They shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. So here God is saying, I would, I would redeem them if they would just but turn to me, but they're not doing it. Everything that befalls them, they continue to be stoked like a heated oven, out of control, their passions and desires unchecked because of the decisions that they continue to make. In fact, they are equivalent to a half-baked scone. The side that is facing the Lord is hardened to him. The side facing the world is vulnerable and soft. They have mixed syncretistically or mixed in their religion with all the surrounding religions. They're cutting themselves as if they were prophets of Baal to try to get more grain. So think about that. Why would you choose, if you're, just, if you're, having, if you're gonna worship a God, just do this thought experiment with me. And you have a choice. All right, the Lord your God, who says, what I want from you is love your neighbors, be fantastic in the community, be ambassadors of reconciliation, and I'll make sure you're taken care of. Bail, cut yourselves with pot sheards when there's no rain. I want you to mutilate yourselves. Let's mutilate ourselves. That sounds awesome. Really? 
what is wrong with us that we would do? But you may say that's ridiculous. But I want to point out to you that much of what we choose to do, the lovers we choose to go after, are also equally harmful and destructive to us. And it would almost be better if we, um, let me be careful here, it would almost be better if there was some sort of outward signal that we were in fact destroying ourselves. So often it's internal. And in fact, that's what they're going to experience, that the fire they've stoked is going to burn the kingdom from within. The very rulers that, that chose to, to call them to, to perform all these wicked deeds and follow this, this worship, they will actually slaughter them someday. They will turn on them. I just finished the book uh, Darkness at Noon by Arthur Kessler, who is a Hungarian and who suffered time in a communist prison. And it's a fantastic book. Uh, if you're just into communist prison stories. Uh, and so in the book, basically, he's one of the ones who started the movement. The, so he's part of the party. And systematically, uh, Stalin, who's referred to as number one, is, is killing every single one of the original members so that he is the only one left. And people are doing it with great vigor as if they are serving the party. And that's not just fiction, by the way. And it's not just in their country, by the way. We destroy our own. We rise up against them all the time. And so we can see that this, in fact, is a truity of us. That the ones who actually lead us into temptation do those things, we will turn on them someday. We see it in the book of Revelation. Think about the woman, Babylon, and how everyone turns on her after she's led them into all of this craziness. And so though they chase after Egypt, their former enemies, Egypt and Assyria, they will, not be, they will not be healed because those people can't heal them. They're former enemies. In fact, they're only going to look after their own interests, not the interests of the people of God. How silly, like a silly little dove, they just flit about. And how much many of us could be described as just silly little doves flitting about, you know, bringing in a little, let's bring in a little Deepak Chopra. Is he still a thing? Am I, am I, is that a bad reference? Let's bring in a little, let's bring in a little Oprah. Let's bring in a little Rob Bell, right? Uh, what is the Bible? Great question, Rob. Uh, and, so, and so let's just bring in all these kind of different things, right? And just make us one big kind of, kind of smorgasbord of religion so I can have what I want because... Geez, I'm finite. I should know, right? I should be making infinite decisions as a finite being. We do this. We bring in, or bring in this blogger or this tweeter or this whatever to influence us and to shape us instead of knowing what we ought to know about Scripture. We know way more uh, about the coming Marvel movies than we do about Scripture. What an indictment, right? And I, don't get me wrong, I was, I was a huge nerd kid. I had all the comic books. My dad pawned them for what they weren't worth. I could have been awesome. Could have been like a billionaire or something by now. Who knew they were coming back around? But, but we do, we know way more. And I, I always will remember this at Moe's one time. I heard two guys get in a fight after church, no less. And one guy was like, you know a TIE fighter can't do that. Well, TIE fighters can't do anything. They're mythical, as it turns out. Uh, and so, but we know all about these universes and things, and yet we don't even know this one. We don't know the one who created this one, who set it in motion, who knows how it works best. We don't even know him like we ought. And yet, notice his patience, how he continues to pursue us, and he continues to love us, and he continues to say to us, you are not a half-baked scone. I have a scone story. So the first time I ever had a scone, uh, there was a fella at, at, a, at a church where I was in interim. And he comes up and I ate it. And it was the equivalent. Does there, anybody know what hardtack is? So I, I thought I broke my teeth. And so, so my assumption was, well, this is what a scone is. It is basically a rock-like substance and should not be consumed, Right? 
So uh, my wife and I were doing some premarital counseling and had somebody over for breakfast and she was making strawberry scones. I was like, throw mine in the trash. Let's just bypass that. I don't want, she's like, what is wrong with you? I was like, it's, it's like hard to, it's like, it's disgusting. She's like, no, it's like a biscuit. It's soft. Hers, as it turns out, are quite yummy. And I encourage you to ask her to make you one if you are confused on what a scone should taste like, like I was. But we should not be in the mouths of this world breaking their teeth because of our hardness. We should not be that hard tack scone. We, we should be an aroma of life. We should be something delectable to the perishing in this world. I know that the, the stench of the gospel can be death to those who are perishing, but not everybody's perishing. And we should be something that is um, nourishing and edifying to those around us through our jobs, through our neighbors, neighborliness. I have to brag on my wife for a second. Uh, she, uh, we read a book here called The Art of Neighboring. And uh, my wife is a, a ridiculous introvert, uh, if you didn't know that. And uh, she took it very seriously, and she got to know all of our neighbors around. And so one of our neighbors is named Myra and Louie, and uh, they're, uh, they're from South America. Actually, he's from Cuba, and um, she is from Guatemala. And so uh, they don't let anybody in their house, they're, they're, but they let us into their home. And I, I just came by virtue of Susan. Um, and it was a really neat thing. She texted Susan and she said, we're really gonna miss you guys. This neighborhood has changed now that you're gone. And you don't find many people like you. Um, and we appreciated y'all. Now that's on my wife. I, I, I was not really that big of a deal on that one. And so here's, here's Susan, who was in a, the aroma of light, who would say, I, I don't know how I share the gospel. She did. She did so beautifully and left a deep impression on two people, one of which really needed to hear the gospel. I don't think Louis is a believer. His wife doesn't think so. And so we have an opportunity to be something of value to this world, which is what God created us to be. And that means that we have to know him and know what it is that we're called to do. And we have to live that out in steadfast love because it's going to be hard. And you will not always be received with open arms. Not every neighbor is going to think you're the greatest. And so I want to ask you a hard question as we are about to transition to communion. What are some ways in which you've been hardened toward the Lord? And it's made you unstable and vulnerable to be inflamed by destructive passions? This is a great question, by the way. It's not one we like. You might want to do this on Monday and not today. Today ought to be celebration. Maybe save this for Monday or Tuesday or something like that. But you need to be thinking about this because all of us at some point have found ourselves a half-baked scone hardened toward the Lord. So what is it that leads you there, and how can you acknowledge and use the means of grace to stay out of that place? Or maybe you're there today. There is a way out. You're not, you're not bound to stay there. And then what are some places where you've sought healing? Lovers far less wild than the Lord. What are some places you've sought healing and identity? And how might you, how might you recognize that they cannot save you? They cannot be what you're asking them to be. They cannot give you what only the Lord who made you can give you. So as we wrap up this particular chapter, these two chapters, here's two things that we should take away. One, we should seek a relationship born of steadfast love for and knowledge of God as opposed to offering heartless religious rites. Please hear me. So many of us are just, we're, this is a, a cycle we get trapped in where we're just offering up bare duty. Now, there's a sense in which we have to persevere. There are gonna be dry seasons, don't get me wrong, and you need to continue to persevere through those dry seasons, hence the steadfast love part. But don't let what you do be, be in any way, shape, or form commodified because it makes you the commodity. Second, that a commodified relationship, that, that hardens us to the Lord and makes us unstable and proudly inflamed in our destructive passions. So many of us, this, we've been, I've been here where I was so hardened to the Lord and I was giving myself over to the darkness and was wallowing in it. Not, this, not any time recently, but have, have been there too many times. And some of you may be there this morning. 
but it's because you've commodified God and you saw yourself as a commodity because you're believing a false gospel, not the true gospel of Scripture that says you are an heir, son or daughter of the God Most High. So as we think about these things and we transition to communion, um, this is, in this table, we have the Lord crying out to us and saying to us that he longs to heal us, right? And in this table is the evidence of his healing grace and mercy. You have the broken body of Christ, which takes away our sin, past, present, and future, and the totality of God's wrath. If we, if we could just believe that, if we could get our heads around that the totality of God's wrath toward you has been satisfied in Christ, how might it change how we pray, how we live, how we, how we move, how we enjoy, and these things aren't commodified. And you may say, well, that's bright, Cameron, but isn't there a, isn't there a judgment for believers? You know, there's gonna be a, an actual a, a, a purifying of your works. You're right. But notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, you will be saved from the fire. Whatever's hay, wood, and stubble that you've built, that's gotta be done away with so you can enjoy God. And granted, I don't want to spend long. I don't know how long we get in the fire. I don't know what it's going to feel like. I'm not, I don't want to, I'm not super excited about that part. But what I do know is that the promise holds that God's, that, that God's wrath has been exhausted toward me. Right? And our works have to be purified, those things that will translate into the new heavens and the new earth. And then, as if that weren't good enough, he grants us the, the, the shed blood, the filled cup, so that we could walk in newness of life. All the stuff that you're saying, I don't think I can do that. You're right, you can't, but Christ can in and through you in the power of the Holy Spirit. It may take a while, but it's amazing what you can accomplish by sticking to something for a few years. You can even get an MDiv in seven years. I did it, right? It took a while. And you may say, I should have lapsed or something, I don't know. Um, but, but you can accomplish amazing things by just staying perseverant and steadfast in the means of grace. And so the Lord completely redeems us. That's what this table is representative of. This isn't partial redemption. This is a table of great celebration. This is the God who came all the way to us because we were never gonna come to him.